0: So unlike other major religions, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity is not primarily concerned with our actions. It's not. Christianity is primarily concerned with our motives, with our hearts. If there's one thing that Jesus is primarily concerned about, he would use the word love. And love is a mysterious thing. So, um some of you have been around, and you've heard me talk of Jane before, so don't ruin the punchline here, but Jane and I became friends in college. My sophomore year, we started hanging out in the same groups and got to know each other just as we went and did things together, and then we ended up that group of friends basically all went on a mission trip together, and, and Jane came along, and, uh, and into that, at the beginning of the mission trip, I heard through the grapevine, and later was confirmed to be true, that Jane was... Interested in being more than friends with me. And uh, let, me, let me say, Jane is a lovely, lovely person. I'm still friends with her. Her name is not Jane. <laughs> uh, lovely person. Great, great girl. I I'm, mean, I'm all kinds of positive things I could say about about her. She's a nice person now. Um but the matter is there is just nothing nothing there there was no sparks on my side she's a nice girl was it so 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 when i found that out i did what any respectable man would do knowing that he's going to spend the next you know month on a mission trip with this person i just ignored it and pretended like i knew nothing <laughs> if i played dumb it'll go away right so and then something happened. We're out one day, and uh, we're out with this group. And then suddenly, the group like all disappears, and it's just me and Jane. And I'm like, Ugh! and she's looking extra stressed and conflicted that day. And I'm like, this is going to be so awkward. And she comes up to me and says, uh, "Paul, my life is so complex right now." And I'm just thinking, "Where's the group? Shouldn't we find the group?" <laughs> and uh, and then she says something that I wasn't expecting. She says, "You know, I'm I'm turning 21 and." My family they're they're kind of wealthy and I'm like okay. And she says, "Well, you see, I have this trust fund. And these lawyers they're contacting me already because when I turn 21, I will be responsible for my 20 my 10 million dollar trust fund." Now she kept talking, but at that point my mind shut off. I couldn't hear anything. (laughs) At that point, I, I could no longer hear the words that coming out of her mouth because I was, I was off. I was fantasizing about what it'd be like to have 10 million dollars. Like I was, I was having a house in Vail and Cabo and Soho. I was driving an Aston Martin Vanquish right at that moment. 10 million dollars. And so seriously, the first thought I had was, for ten million dollars could I learn to love this girl? <laughs> and then it was followed briefly, just slight hesitation by I am such a prostitute. <laughs> it is hard to love when millions of dollars are at stake. Here's my question. If if for ten million dollars I could be tempted to vow my love and my life to a woman What would happen if I could meet a person who could not only make me wealthy, but could literally solve every problem in my life? What would happen if I met a a person who could literally fix everything, fix my kids, give me a dream job, make me wealthy, smart, healthy, heal my diseases, take care of everything that's wrong, make me perfectly happy? What if I met such a person, could I love that person? Or would all the stuff that they could give me get in the way of real love? And that that brings us to Palm Sunday. When Jesus uh He's coming into Jerusalem from Bethany. He's coming down this hill and then up. And there's these crowds of people at the time. They say millions maybe. Maybe two million people there. Two thousand years ago. This very Sunday. Millions of fans screaming, cheering. Like they've heard the rumors. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He's going to be king. And they're like waving their palms. And this is a symbol of celebration. They're they're quoting uh, this psalm of victory. Of celebration of God's final victory over everything. Psalm 118. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hushanna, Hushanna, which literally translates, save us, save us, you're the king, save us. Why are they saying that? Because they see Jesus, they see someone who can solve their every problem. This is a guy who can make us wealthy, can defeat our enemies, can give us the dream job, can give us a house in Soho, Cabo, and give me an Aston Martin vanquish. So, So do you love Jesus? Yes! I love all that stuff. But do you love Jesus? Yes! I want everything he's going to give me. But do you love Jesus? You see, loving Jesus and loving the stuff that he can do for you, that is something different. That's a hard question. That is a question of motives, a question of our heart, a question that, that um, only you can probably answer, and even then, only you can answer under the right circumstances, that we would know our own hearts. but But don't be confused here. Just because it's a hard question doesn't mean it's a question we can overlook. In fact, if you look through the Scriptures, you will read that this is a question that Jesus seems very concerned that we address. In fact, when we come to the gospel of Mark, as we're going to today, this entire gospel of Mark seems to be formed around this question, do you love Jesus or do you just love the stuff he can do for you? So uh, can we get the house lights up just a pinch? If you have a Bible today, I want you to turn there, follow along in this. This is going to be, this is going to be, we're going to be all through the book of Mark. So if you if you got a Bible or if you got it on your phone, turn there because I'm going to skip over a lot of things, but I want you to see the context. I want you to see the scope of what we're going to cover here. We are not going to cover a passage in the Gospel of Mark. We are going to cover the entire Gospel of Mark. And Lord willing, I'll be done before it's time to preach next Sunday. Just kidding. Just kidding. All right. So, so the Gospel of Mark, let's set the context here. The Gospel of Mark is arguably, scholars think, the earliest written record of the life of Death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it begins like this. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Now, I just want to stop right there. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Messiah, Messiah or Christ, same word, in Hebrew it's Mashiach or Messiah, in Greek it's Christ or Christos, both of them just mean anointed, this is how you recognized God's king, God's chosen king of his people, you anointed him, so he is the anointed one, he is the promised king of God's people who will come and transform our world, pour out God's blessings, defeat our enemies, and this is good news, The good news, the news that needs to be spread everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. Jesus Christ, the promised king, has come. So how is he going to spread this good news? All right? In the first chapter, we see what? He gets baptized. If you scan down, he gathers some disciples. And then what's he going to do next to proclaim this good news of great joy? We see in uh, verse 40 and following, he comes up, and we sang about this just a second ago. He finds a man with a horrible skin disease. Leprosy, like his skin's rotting, actually falling off. And what does Jesus do? He comes up, he touches the man. And rather than contracting the disease, what happens? The man is healed miraculously. So Jesus does this and then immediately says in chapter 1, verse 43, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Huh? All right, so we fast forward. um, Let's just skip right down to chapter 3 here. There are these demon-possessed people. People are haunted by dark, dark things. Things we don't really understand. And it says in chapter 3, starting in verse 11, when the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Like these evil spirits, they get it. They see Jesus and say, you're the son of God. You are the promised one. You are the king. And then Jesus says, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Chapter 5. Chapter 5 has one of my favorite stories. It's about a little girl, and, um, and she's sick and she dies. So Jesus cuts through this crowd of mourners and all this, and he says, "Don't worry, she's not. She's not dead. She's just sleeping." They laugh at him. Actually, he goes in, he pushes everyone out of the room because they had all these mourners and the, pushes everyone out of the room except mom, dad, two disciples. He goes over to the bedside, and I, the reason I love this so much is my daughter and I we used to enact this at night. She would pretend like she's the dead girl, and I would pretend like I'm Jesus. And and, and he goes over, he ta- and and you can just imagine Jesus taking her little hand, and he says, "Talitha kum, She's just like this sweet, beautiful, like little girl. Wake up, just with a gentle word, and she does. And then Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. <laughs> okay, so chapter seven, Chapter seven. I want to hear this play? Yeah, chapter seven, look at this. You find he, he runs into what? A deaf man in chapter 7. He, he goes over, does this crazy thing, opens his ears so the deaf man can now hear. And what's Jesus then turn and say to everyone? Chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Chapter 8, can you guess what's going to happen? Huh? Chapter 8, he finds a blind man. And he uses this really weird two-stage process of healing them, which is really worth reflecting. You should read it sometime and meditate on it. But he spits on the man, does the stuff, makes mud, all this, heals the man. And then what does he say to him? Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Like, I don't want you to tell anyone about this. Don't talk to anyone. You don't even go into the village. Because they're going to know what happened. Now now we've just fast forward we we've skimmed over we sampled the first 8 chapters of the entire gospel of mark and at this point two things are perfectly clear number 1 there is no question Jesus is the messiah he is the son of god he is the son of man all those exalted titles and what does that mean it means that he has power and authority over everything he can heal the sick he can give sight to the blind. Demons cower in fear. He has power over everything. He can fix my kids, make me wealthy, make me happy, give me power. He can do anything he wants. That's perfectly clear. But there's a second thing that's also perfectly clear here. Jesus does not want anyone to know about this. Or more specifically, he does not want anyone to follow him for these reasons kind of weird so in chapter 8 then starting in verse uh, 27 the very next verse we're going to find the the turning point of the entire book of the gospel of mark and you see at this point the secret's out it's like too late. Everybody's talking. There's all these rumors spreading. It's going all the way to the palace, all the way out in the streets. And everyone's saying, "Who is this man?" And some of them are saying, well, "I think he's Elijah." Some are saying he's a prophet of old. And uh, some of them are saying, "Like, remember John the Baptist had his head chopped off just not too long ago?" They're like, "He's John the Baptist back from the dead." Um, so Jesus then, in, in Mark chapter eight, verse twenty-nine, he's going to get his disciples alone. He's going to have a big huddle here, and he's going to take this head on. He said, you've heard all the rumors. So what about you? He asked, who, who do you say I, that I am? Like, Who do you think I am? You've been seeing me. You've been living me, with me for this time. What, who do you say? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. I'm like, yes, that's exactly right. Peter's exactly right. Jesus is the Messiah. He has authority over everything. He's the great king sent from God, the promised one who will come and defeat our enemies and bring us into this awesome time of blessing. So what's Jesus then do? Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Okay, so what's going on? Like, isn't this the good news? Like, do do, do you feel this here? Like, what's the big deal? Like, Jesus, isn't this the good news? Jesus, the good news of Jesus the Messiah. That it's it's the news. We're supposed to go tell it on the mountain. This is why you came to show everyone your kingdom. And the question is, is why do you keep saying, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't even go back into the village. Don't tell anyone. Why? So in order to try and um, make sense of these first eight chapters, uh, we need to kind of like distance ourselves from maybe what we know about Jesus and about church. And we need to try and see the world through the eyes of first century Galileans, just for a minute, all right? Try and imagine what the world would look like through the eyes of first century Galilean peasants. And if the crowd back then, all these crowds that were so fascinated by Jesus and all the miracles he's doing, if they heard Jesus is the Messiah, what would that mean to them? Like, what would they expect? What would they be looking for? Now, if you've uh, done any research, you know that there were differing opinions, even at that time, about who the Messiah would be, what he would do. But even if you pull all the differing opinions, you have this basic checklist of, like, main points, a job description of a first century Messiah. You can come up with that. There's some real clear points in which we're, they're all going to agree on. There's a consensus. There are four main things that a first century Jewish Messiah, any good Messiah should do to fulfill the job. So if you're a first century Messiah, the first thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to defeat our enemies. And who is their enemy? Rome, right? So the ancient Jews were looking for a military leader in, in Galilee, where Jesus grew up, right? Nazareth of Galilee. That area was specifically, it was kind of like the, the Montana of the ancient Near East. You know what I mean? Like all those militia people living up there. Sorry if you're from Montana. I don't mean to. But you get the idea. Like These people like living in compounds and stuff in, in Galilee at that time. Time after time, if you read through the history, there were all these uprisings. People trying to overthrow Rome. And they were losing big time, by the way. So they were looking for a Messiah who would defeat their enemy. The second thing that a Messiah was supposed to do is make you filthy rich. I mean, and and maybe the the biblical term would be supernaturally blessed. Read Amos. Read Isaiah. Like, it's the language of just like wealth on top of wealth on top of wealth. So he's going to defeat your enemies. He's going to make you rich. And then he's going to make you powerful. Yes, he's going to, once the Messiah comes and sets up, there's, he's going to set up thrones. The Jews were going to be the most powerful people in the world, and, and there were going to be these thrones that, that these, those closest to the Messiah would rule over the nations. And then, last but certainly not least, he will make you happy. He will make you happy. More technically, we would say it's a supernatural age of peace, satisfaction, shalom. This is what the Messiah will do. He will defeat our enemies. You'll make us rich, powerful, happy, beyond belief. So, 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 so. If these are the expectations, first century peasants following Jesus, and they then hear Jesus is the Messiah, what are they going to do? How are they going to respond? They're going to say, yeah, I want to be rich. I want to be powerful. I want to be happy. And you'd be like, I want some of that. Let's grab our pitchforks. Let's join in this army. Let's follow this guy, Jesus. Be our king. Let's go kill some Romans. Right? That's the expectations. In fact, you find that throughout the Gospels if you read it carefully. So Jesus wants to clarify this. Just he just finished saying, "Don't tell anyone." And then he turns. It says in in uh, Matt. Mark chapter 8 verse 31, Jesus is going to turn not just to the disciples but to the crowds. He's going to say, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So he's, he's going to say, let me clarify one thing. I am the Messiah, but I will not be killing any Romans. I will be killed. To which Peter says, What? No! Jesus! You missed it! I said you're the Messiah! Don't you know what that means? That means you're going to give us victory and glory, you're going to defeat our enemies. We're going to be wealthy. I'm going to be driving an Aston Martin vanquish. It's going to be awesome, Jesus. And it, it says, the very next verse, he spoke plainly about this. Jesus said this all plainly, so Peter, being so helpful, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you got this all wrong here. So I've got this figured out. It's going to be awesome. To which Jesus turns to him and says, you're Satan. <laughs> I don't know what you do after Jesus calls you Satan. I really don't. That must be really like just a, a bad day. <laughs> why, why is Jesus so adamant about this point? Why is he calling Peter Satan? Because at this point, Peter doesn't care what Jesus has to say. He only cares about what Peter, or about what Jesus can do for him. I, I want you to hear this. At this point, Peter does not love Jesus. He only loves what Jesus can do for him. And Jesus says this is selfish, and this is godless, and this is satanic. He follows it up by saying, you do not have uh, in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You're thinking about your gut. You're thinking about your wealth. You're thinking about your power. You're thinking about your success. You are not thinking about me. Jesus then turns to everyone and says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Do you hear this? Whoever wants to go take over the Romans and set themselves up in some big castle and make themselves wealthy and make it all about their happiness and their wealth and their power and their success and their lives, whoever seeks that, they're going to die. They're going to be miserable. But whoever gives up all of these things is going to find life. And then he follows it up. I don't have this verse, but it's a, it's a haunting verse where he turns and he says, hey, if anyone's ashamed of this, if anyone's ashamed of me, if anyone's ashamed of the fact that their God is getting ready to be powerless, weak, nothing, suffer, mocked, and die on a cross. If anyone's ashamed of a crucified God, you're not willing to follow him, then I'm going to be ashamed of you. Chapter 9. If there is any confusion at this point about what Jesus means, he's going to take his disciples off to the side and he's going to say to them, he said to them the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will be they will kill him and after 3 days they uh, after three days he will rise again. So so uh, I want you to see this in chapter 9, verse 31, 32, 33. I want you to look at this parallel here. And 31 he says, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be killed. Is there any question? I'm going to be killed. And it says in verse 32, they did not understand. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus, because I couldn't hear what you were saying because I was so thinking about, like, what it'd be like to have that house and drive that car and how awesome it's going to be when you're in your kingdom. I'm going to be killed. They did not understand. And then they turn to each other and they have an argument about who's the greatest. (laughs) It's like, this is like comic relief right here. Boom, boom, boom. It's showing us right here that they don't get it. And so Jesus is actually going to say to them, no, you don't get it. If you want to be the greatest, you got to be the least. You got to be the lowest. You got to become like a little child. You have to be willing to give up everything, everything, everything that makes you valuable, powerful, meaningful in this world so that you can have me and find your value, power, meaning in me. You have to give up everything. And the disciples so don't get this lesson that in the very next chapter, what do they do? When all these children start bothering Jesus, they're like, what's going on? These children should not be bothering the the Messiah. He's a great king. He doesn't have time for kids. He doesn't have to get away from them. And then finally... In chapter 10, verse 17, finally someone shows up that they're impressed with, right? Finally, someone shows up that they're like, this is the guy. This is the guy who should be part of the kingdom. This is the guy who's awesome. This is the guy we should give our time to. He is rich and he's young. He's the rich, young ruler. So in chapter 17, we meet this guy. He shows up. And then Jesus, uh, Jesus says to him, you know, uh, if you want to follow me, uh, well, well, first thing you got to do is you got to obey all God's laws. And he's like, got that? I'm the rich young ruler. Of course I do all that. And so, <laughs> classic line, chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Don't, don't miss those three words. And he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Go give up everything that gives you importance and power and meaning in your life. Go give up everything that you hold dear and then come follow me. Then you'll know what it's like. Then you'll know what it means to follow me to the cross. And what happens? The man goes away sad chapter 10 verse 33 right after this passage jesus is going to say this as clearly as possible we are going up to jerusalem he said and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and three days later he will rise and the very next verse you know what happens in the very next verse He just said, I'm going to die. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to mock, spit upon, flogged, killed. What's the very next verse? James and John are like, yeah. So here's our question, Jesus. Can I sit on the right and he sit on the left? or Where are we going to sit when we're in the kingdom? Because we know you're going to become this great king. And I have no idea what you're just talking about there. But you're going to become this great king and make us so powerful and wealthy. So which side do we get to sit on in your kingdom? Mark chapter 11 is then Palm Sunday. Today. And the disciples are so fixated at this point on what Jesus can do for me, but they can't seem to hear a word he's saying. So seriously, in in the lineup to this, it looks something like this. Jesus says, I am going to die a shameful, penniless death. And they're asking like, oh, but what type of car should I get? An Aston Martin or a Ferrari or both? Jesus is like, I'm going to give up all my power and be slaughtered like a lamb. And they're like, but where will my seat be at the table? Do I get the right or the left? And Jesus is like, I'm going to be, suffer and, and be nailed to a tree and die. And they're like, oh, but how happy will we be? Will we be laughing all day long? Do you see it? How is it possible that Jesus could so clearly lay this out and yet they're so fixated on what Jesus could do for them that they can't even hear him? How is it possible that we could be so fixated on what Jesus can do for us that we might not hear what he's saying? So, the truth, the truth of the Gospel of Mark is that Following Jesus means following Jesus to the cross. It's a call to come and die. At the cross, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all the things that we think make us important, they mean nothing. That's what it meant to follow Jesus then. That's what it means to follow Jesus now. Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> Be encouraged. Be encouraged. So what's going on in their hearts that makes it so impossibly hard for them to hear what Jesus is saying? And um, we've we've talked about this before, but I want to unpack this a little. Um, my guess is that their hardness of hearing is, is really starts out innocent. You see, if you if you read through the Bible, you're going to find that all the stuff that the ancient Palestinians believed that the Messiah would do for them, it's it's in the Bible at one point or another. It is. I mean, you, you see these promises for blessing and for wealth and for honor and for things like that in the Bible itself. The truth is, is that the result of following Jesus is that he will transform your life. The Bible clearly teaches that following Jesus will ultimately result in power, glory, healing, riches, titles, and more. This is true. Jesus himself teaches it. What does he say? He says, uh, we will have mansions, thrones, and crowns, right? Someday, we will. He says, whatever we give up now, in this life, we will receive back tenfold in the kingdom. In the end, Jesus will overthrow the powers of the world. I've read Revelation. It's true. In the end, there will be glory, power, thrones, wholeness, health, happiness. All of this is true. But when people, disciples, crowds, you and me, hear about these results of following Jesus the temptation is that we turn results into reasons to follow Jesus and this is the difference reason versus result, result. It, it, it's, it sounds like a subtle difference but it's really really huge I want, you to, I want you to think about this the result of believing Jesus is a transformed life is that true yes it is the reason for believing in Jesus is a transformed life. Maybe? So uh, let's, um. sometimes biblical terms get us too caught up. So let's think about this um, in non-biblical terms here for a minute. Uh, the result of saving your life is that I received a medal of honor. Is that good? Yes! You should receive that if you save my life. The reason I saved your life is that I would receive a medal of honor. What? The result of being a dentist is that I have to cause pain. Sad but true. Some people do this. The reason I'm a dentist is so that I can cause pain. What? That's terrible. You need to go to jail. The result of my friendship with you is that you let me use your ski boat. If anyone has a ski boat, I would love to be your friend right now. The reason for my friendship with you, the result is you let me use your ski boat. The reason for my friendship with you Is that you let me use your ski boot? That's different. The reason, the result of marrying you is that you make me a millionaire. The reason I'm marrying you is that you will make me a millionaire. Love, prostitution, a little different, a little different. The reality is that there are many things in life which the reasons we have have little to do with the results they achieve. I would argue that the most important things in life, marriage, parenting, friendship, acts of heroism, love, are our greatest achievements in life. The reason we do these things has almost nothing to do with the results. So why do you want to marry her? Why does someone have kids? Why does someone share themselves with another? Why does someone sacrifice for another? Why does someone uh, create great works of art or strive to do a great job? The reason behind great relationships, truly great achievements, acts of heroism, acts of sacrifice, intimacy, friendship, these are not the same as the results. They're not the same. And to get these confused, to switch reason and result, is a mockery and a perversion. And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus. In the end, to love what Jesus can do for me or how he can make my life better is not the same as loving Jesus. The end of the Christian life is not to love the things that Jesus can do for you. The end of the Christian life is to love Jesus, period. With all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength if the reason that we follow Jesus is so that he can make our lives better, then our great temptation will be that we really won't love Jesus at all. We'll just love the stuff he can do for us. And that, that is what we see on Palm Sunday. Mark chapter 11. 2,000 years ago this very day millions of people lining the streets cheering cheering rumors have spread through the crowd Jesus is coming he's going to make himself king he's going to be the Messiah he's going to give us a better life he's going to give me that job I always wanted he's going to defeat my enemies he's going to make us wealthy it's going to be so great he's going to fix my kids and fix my marriage and fix my life it's going to be so great and so Jesus comes down this road from Bethany up into Jerusalem and, and crowds they're chanting they're cheering I love Jesus I want to follow him. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. And so on this Sunday, Jesus has a million fans. But just five days later, when they realize that Jesus is not going to make their lives better, he's not the king they hope for, he's not going to kill the Romans, he's not going to make them wealthy, he's not here to make them happy, they become disillusioned and their love turns. To hatred. And the chants turn from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify Him, crucify Him. And there on the cross this Friday, instead of being encircled with fans, He faces death completely alone. Instead of a crown of gold, Crown of thorns are pressed upon his head. Instead of adoration, he is mocked and spit upon. Instead of becoming the most powerful man in the world, he's so weak that he can't carry his own cross. Someone else has to do it for him. Instead of being clothed like a king, he's stripped naked. Instead of being lifted up on a throne, he's lifted up on the cross. Instead of being beauty, the the image of beauty, success, and health, he's, he's on the cross, writhing, cursed, disfigured, And at the foot of the cross, nobody's cheering. At the foot of the cross, there is no power. There is no money. There is no happiness. At the foot of the cross, we discover how much Jesus loves us, but we also discover how much we love him. Nobody, nobody, nobody comes to the cross looking for Jesus to give them something. The only reason to follow Jesus to the cross is because you love him. It's the only possible reason anyone would follow Jesus through that. Every other motivation is stripped away and and when you come to the cross, it's this grotesque image, but I want you to see, but, 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 there's a turning point here. If you follow him there, if you love him for himself, then you know that this is not the end. This is not the message. Because remember, Jesus had to be beaten, spit upon, mocked, betrayed, crucified. But as he says, the Son of Man must suffer. They will kill him. But then after three days, he will rise. So, so, I hope you know this. The cross is not the end. It's the beginning. It's true, um, the cross is terrible. But if the reason you follow Jesus' is love, then you will follow him to the cross and in the cross, at the cross, at the place of suffering, at the place of being betrayed, of loneliness, of brokenness, of pain, of death. On the cross, what did Jesus do? He didn't just die. He defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death. He broke the power of Satan. On the cross, he didn't just die, but he poured out for us what the Apostle Paul calls the uh, the riches of God's grace. The true treasure. A treasure of joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, selflessness, self-control. That On the cross, Jesus gave us riches that money could never buy. On the cross, he gave me power. The power to say no to my own evil desires. To put others first. The power to live like a child of God. On the cross, he shows us the way of true joy. Not some like tingly happiness that you would feel driving a car. But happiness that can't be taken away by my circumstances. Happiness that this world cannot give and it cannot take. So here's the question. Does Jesus the Messiah, does he defeat my enemies? Does he make me rich and powerful and happy? Well, yes, yes, he does. But here's the great, great paradox of the Christian faith. How does he do that? He does it through a cross. He purifies our motives through the cross. And we will only find these things through the cross if we love him for his own sake. So the way of victory, riches, power, joy is the way of the cross. I don't want to over-apply this. I just want to leave you today. We're going to sing a closing song. But I'm going to leave you with three questions. I'm going to leave these out there. I'm going to pray. And I want to give you just a minute to reflect on these questions. The question number one is, do you I love Jesus or do I just love the stuff he can do for me? Second question is this, do do I know my own heart? Can I even answer this for myself or am I so blinded, so deafened by my own fantasies, all the stuff I want in life, all the stuff I'm seeking, that I can't hear Jesus one way or the other? And the third question, and maybe the most appropriate for our setting, is this, if Jesus, if I stood before Jesus like the rich young ruler and Jesus looked at me and loved me, What would he say to me? What might he ask me to give up and let go of so that I can follow him fully? Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use this time to, to clarify our love for you. God, I, I pray that right now we would, uh, we would see your son standing before us with his eyes of love. And that we wouldn't take his words as punishment, but as an invitation to follow him. God, if there are things in the way, things that are stopping us from knowing you and following you, I pray, Lord, that you would make that evident now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.